Welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. We're so thankful that you've taken the time to join us today and want you to know that this is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 8 in our 2 Corinthians Bible Study podcast. This episode is entitled, Paul's Joy in the Corinthians' Repentance, where we'll discuss 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 16. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? Well, this is a wonderful chapter on the vital issue of what genuine repentance looks like. What are the elements of true repentance? What kind of demeanor should we have when we are trying to recover from sin? And so we'll see that in the middle of the chapter. We'll also see Paul's exhortation to the Corinthian church to be completely pure from all corruption in light of even the things we saw at the end of chapter 6 last time. We'll begin with that. And in the midst of all of that, we're going to see Paul's ardent concern for a, a, a healthy, loving relationship between himself as the church planter, their spiritual father as an apostle, and them as a church. He, he wants a, a relationship with them. It feels very much like a father with, with children. And it's almost like he's speaking to a child that's a bit wayward and is breaking his heart. So we're going to see that intimacy, that love that he has for them come out very strongly in this chapter. Well, I'd like to go ahead and read all of chapter 7 for us as we continue our journey through Second Corinthians together. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts, to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So, although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice 
because I have complete confidence in you. Andy, how does the fear of God serve as a strong motivator for personal purity? And how does this first verse connect with the verses we discussed at the conclusion of our last episode? Well, there's a direct connection, I think, between the end of chapter 6 and on into chapter 7, verse 1. I mean, the the first divisions came in later and are not part of the original letter, and so it just flowed right in. Remember how he's calling on them to come out and be separate from the pagans. Come out and be separate from the ungodly and the wicked. Don't be unequally yoked with them. Don't have strong, close covenant relationships with them, certainly not marriage, but even business arrangements or even just regular concourse that they don't need to have. Don't be polluted by them. Come out from them and be separate. And don't touch the the unclean things. Don't do wicked things, uh, as we saw in 1 Corinthians, how they needed to stop frequenting the temple prostitutes and being part of those pagan uh, wicked feasts that were just part of the uh, the Gentile life, the pagan life, before Paul came to town with the gospel. So come out and stop doing all of that. And if you do that, I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters. And then he goes right on, therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, and then he gives this exhortation, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit. In this version, it says perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So that's the completion of the thought. You know, I want you to be pure from defilement, pure from wickedness, pure from sin. And so do that. And I think this is a lasting, timeless command to all Christians. It's very similar to 1 John 2 where he says, do not love the world or anything in the world. Anyone who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For the things that are in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, are not from the Father but from the world. They contaminate us, Paul says here. They are spiritual pollutants. Mm. So he says, get rid of them. Get, get rid of all of those things that are polluting you, things that are contaminating your body and your spirit. It's a powerful image, isn't it? The idea that things can contaminate your spirit. Mm. So we have to, as we read that, think, is there anything of the world that's contaminating my body and my spirit? If so, this verse tells us we need to get rid of it, get, get it out of our lives, out of our hearts. And why is it vital for 21st century Christians to be extremely diligent to be pure from this continual onslaught of the world's defilement? And what does Paul mean by that phrase, bringing holiness to completion? Yeah, it's a great. Let me take the second question first. Perfecting or bringing holiness to completion really is is, uh, sanctification language. It's that idea of progressive growth into Christ's likeness. We need to put sin to death by the Spirit. We need to to, uh, do that negative work of mortification. We also need to do the positive work of imitating the virtues of Christ. That's perfecting holiness. Holiness in this case means absolute separation from evil. To, that we would have nothing to do with anything evil, anything wicked or sinful. So that's what that means. And why is it necessary for us 21st century Christians to be especially vigilant? In one sense, it's no more necessary than any generation. Satan has been active in pushing the world on the people of God in every generation. It's been a threat in every generation. But we know now that with the technology, with smartphones in particular, the world has access to our minds continually in ways that it never did before. 
So things that can contaminate our bodies and our minds are regularly proffered through our eyes. And Jesus said, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. Mm. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if then that darkness within you, that light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So I think we got to be careful about our smartphones. We got to be careful about what we look at, what we see. The, the world has access to us in ways that never Ever did before. Having begun with this call for absolute purity, Paul turns his attention in verses 2 through 7 really to his emotional investment in the Corinthians. We were talking just before we came on about mm-hmm. uh, how emotional this portion of the letter really is. Paul seems to have a significant emotion, emotional investment in mm-hmm. the Corinthians. Why is it so important for church leaders to be emotionally invested in the people that they are mm-hmm. leading? Yeah, I don't know if we could say that there's one word that sums up all of Christianity, but if we are forced to choose one word, it would be love. That Christianity is a religion of love. Uh, And we, we get that really from the two great commandments, that we would love God with all of our hearts, that we would love one another, our neighbors as ourselves. And so we see Paul's deep love for the Corinthians and his desire for them to love him too. And he knows that without that love, they're not born again. Jesus said, by this will all people know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. First John makes it plain. If you don't love the brothers, you're a liar about being a a Christian. This is a vital mark of being a genuine Christian. But it's even more than that. Paul was the one who came and preached the gospel originally. Hmm. He was their father in the faith. And if they don't love him anymore... Basically, they don't love the gospel anymore because that's what he was to them, the bringer of the gospel. Mm. And so Paul is ardent and passionate that they be ardent and passionate for him, not at all because he's needy and insecure and needs a friend. If someone would just go put an arm around this poor Paul and just comfort him, he seems to be so emotionally needy. That's not it at all. Mm. What's going on here is he is concerned about them spiritually. And if they don't love him anymore like they used to, something's going on in their walk with Christ. And so he yearns that they would love him, that there would be a, a tremendous amount of, of concern for him. And, and there is. We'll get to that. But you know, the other side is his affections for them seem to be that of a father, as I mentioned, with a wayward uh, son, maybe a teenager that's you know, still doing some of the right things, but is starting to question some things, mm. starting to do some questionable things. Um, and and he's got that same level of concern for them, it seems. In verse 2, what does Paul mean by make room in your hearts for us? And what credentials does Paul give for why they should not be shutting Paul out? I think this goes with what we said a, a few moments ago. What he wants is a heart affection, a genuine love that the Corinthians would have for him as a clear evidence of the genuine love they have for Christ. That's really what it is. And so when he says, make room for us in your hearts, Hmm. what he means is, I want it to be real. I want your love for us to be genuine. I want you to enlarge yourselves toward us, as he said in chapter six. You know, we've spoken openly to you. Our hearts are open toward, toward you, but your hearts are restrained toward us. He wants a genuine affection by these Corinthian Christians. 
And he goes on to say, we've wronged no one, we've corrupted no one, we've taken advantage of no one, basically listing, hey, here's the reasons you should open your hearts to us. We haven't, we haven't taken advantage of you. We haven't, yeah. we haven't misused that yeah. love or misused your trust. Uh, yeah, before. we have a good track record with you. As, as you mentioned in your question, this is, these are his credentials. And he does a lot of that in this book, in Second Corinthians, his mm-hmm. credentials. In this case, it's the fact that we haven't done anything wrong. We've been nothing but kind to you. What do you make of Paul's statement in verse 3, and how does this statement display the level of care Paul had for the Corinthians? Uh, Well, he says in verse 3, you have such a place in our hearts that we would, in this version, says live or die with you. I liked yours also. What did it say? Yeah, so it says, I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Yeah, basically saying we uh, we have the highest level of of ardency in our relationship with you. We would we would be willing to live or die with you. Uh, that's how much uh, that we are close to you. So it's the, just the highest level of of uh, just intermingling of their lives. They're woven together, whether by life or by death. They would they would they want to do life. He wants to do life together with them. Not only is Paul emotionally invested in the Corinthians, but he also seems to have a high level of confidence in them. Mm -hmm. What does expressing such confidence do to church members or disciples or children that were called to lead? And conversely, if these folks feel that you lack confidence that they'll succeed in the Christian life, how could that be devastating to them? I think there's a real psychology to this. I think good coaches know this. You know, I believe in you. I really think that, that, you know, and, and again, we're not saying ultimately we believe in faulty sinners like we would trust in Christ. We're not saying that. Mm. But what we are saying is I see the evidence of God's grace in your life. I think that you are going to be successful in this. If you put into practice the things we've talked about, and I have confidence that you will, we're going to see great fruit. It gives you hope. If you're around some very negative person uh, who's talking you down and said, based on what I've seen, I don't really think you're going to overcome this. I actually think that's the language of the devil. Mm. I think one of the fundamental lies he tells us is that we are, in fact, still slaves Mm. to sin. Mm. And that sooner or later, sin is going to get us. So you think about a recovering alcoholic or recovering addict to porn or other things like that. He is saying, sooner or later, I got you. Mm. You might as well make it sooner because at some point you're going to fall back into the sin. What a lie. But we're told in Romans 6, we're no longer slaves to sin. We don't ever need to sin again. That's very optimistic. Well, I want to, as a pastor, and Paul as an apostle here, wants to speak that positivity. Say, Mm. you're not a slave to sin. I have full confidence that you're going to conquer. Yeah, being filled with good hope at what's ahead for those who have placed their faith in Christ. What account does Paul relate in verses 5 through 7? What does it show about Paul's level of concern and love for the Corinthians? And why does he share this with them here? Yeah, he talks about him coming into Macedonia and just how difficult it was. And it gives you a real insight into how hard Paul's life was. Um, he was harassed, he was persecuted, and um, it seems, you, you look at it, he says, conflicts on the outside, fears within. He's got inner fears like any normal human being would. We tend to think of Paul as like some ministry robot pound on him and he just gets stronger. No, he's a human being. He says in another place, let no one cause me trouble for I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. He remembers his beatings. He remembers what it was like. And they had, they were harassed on the outside and they had fears within. And he also speaks about God comforting the God who comforts the downcast comforted us when Titus came. You think about that, Paul's saying, yeah, we were downcast. Mm. And again, that's one of Satan's great temptations. Mm. One of the number one ways he gets 
gets fruitful, productive ministers of the gospel to stop being fruitful, productive ministers of the gospel is by depression, discouragement. Yeah. Nothing is going to come of it. We planted all these seeds and not much is happening. Mm. We, we did all this work in the Corinthians, and I don't even think they're still going to be around two years from now. That's Satan talking. But you can get easily discouraged and downcast. Yeah, that kind of anguish can show up in the life of missionaries, evangelists, church planters, pastors, or even, even parents as they endure in entrusting the gospel yeah. uh, to those that are in their sphere of influence. I did a fascinating study once on this weapon of depression, spiritual depression and discouragement, specifically specifically in the lives of very fruitful ministers mm. of the gospel. Um, Martin Luther was so depressed and downcast at the limited fruit he saw mm. in the Wittenbergers, the, his hometown people. He said, I'm not going to preach to you anymore. I'm sick of preaching to you. You're the, you're the same sinful Germans you ever were. Mm. And, he, and he stopped preaching. He wasn't a pastor, so he just went back to his professor work, and he just didn't preach for like 15 months. Wow. And Philip Melanchthon, his right-hand man, tried to persuade him to go mm. back in the pulpit. He said he'd never do it. He eventually did. Then you got Adoniram Judson digging his own grave and looking into it because he's so depressed at the limited fruit and the death of his wife and his child. Mm. Uh, Charles Spurgeon talked about the minister's fainting fits. Every minister at some point gets depressed. Um, they all face great discouragements in, in the ministry. And so Paul did too. And he faced uh, what it was like to be depressed and think, you know, I don't think anything's coming of this. Yeah. Now, what reactions from the Corinthians did Titus tell Paul about in verse 7? And why did these reactions bring joy and comfort to Paul? Well, it was very encouraging when Titus came and said, let me tell you what's actually going on with the Corinthians. Uh, he mentions in verse 7 that they had a longing for him. They mm. wanted him to come back. They couldn't wait for him to come back, meaning they still loved him. And that they were so filled with sorrow um, and had a deep concern for Paul. They were worried, it seems, about what Paul thought about them. Please tell Paul that we love Jesus. Please tell Paul that we love him. We're great, grateful he brought the gospel to us. We are, are strong for heaven. We want to serve God. We know we've messed up. We know we, we've done some things wrong and other things that we should have done we didn't do. Like I think the backdrop of this chapter probably is that church discipline case in which he's dealing with somebody who sinned and they hadn't dealt with it and they're being prideful and arrogant. And he says, you have no good reason for pride. You should have put this man out of your fellowship. He talks about all that. But what Titus says is, look, they are very concerned. The letter you wrote brought them to deep brokenness and sadness, and Paul's going to talk about that. Mm -hmm. It is possible, mm -hmm. New Testament scholars think it's possible that there's a missing letter, not missing from the canon because the Holy Spirit would never let that happen, but just one of Paul's letters in between First and Second Corinthians that was even sharper, a little more dedicated to, to bringing the points home, and it just didn't make it into Scripture. So mm -hmm. it could be that they're referring to this. At any rate, Titus is saying, look, they are brokenhearted. They want you to think well of them. They are sorrowful that they haven't done the right things. They're eager to make it right. He'll get to, into all that. Yeah. You know, as we turn the corner now to the basically last half of mm -hmm. the chapter, we start to see the nature and fruits of true repentance in what Paul unfolds here. Uh, based on what Paul says here and what you were just sharing about the possibility that there's this lost letter, so to speak, or painful letter, right. uh, what do you think he might have said to them in that letter that would have brought them to this place? Based on what I'm seeing, I'm not certain that you've really understood the gospel. Mm. I'm not certain about you. And so... I think there are times to say that. You know, that's what discipline, church discipline is all about. It's like, I'm not certain that you're born again. 
You know, right now, I I think it's possible that you're not. When you discipline an individual mm. and excommunicate him, effectively or formally saying that, we as a local church have severe concerns about whether you're genuinely a Christian. So you can imagine more of a corporate version of that, where not with every single individual, but just in general, I'm very, very sorrowful by what I'm hearing about mm. you, that kind of thing. So might have been something he's he's using language very potently to bring them to repentance. He's zeroing in on their sins and, and giving evidence of their bad behavior and their bad attitudes. And he did it very sharply in the missing letter, or perhaps you can find elements of it even in 1 Corinthians. Paul knows that the letter he wrote them brought them great pain. Mm -hmm. Why was he ultimately glad about that pain? And why would God mm -hmm. want the Corinthians to feel sorrowful? Sure. I think it's important for us to realize sometimes that's necessary. Uh, we've been going through the book of Job on Sunday mornings, and it's pretty obvious that all of it was intentional and wisely done by God. And there's no doubt that Job feeling great pain was necessary for God's purposes in Job's life. Mm. It wasn't some accident. Well, I never saw that coming, God would say. I did want to do certain things, but I didn't expect you to be so hurt. Well, that's ridiculous. Of course, he knew that Job was going to be hurt. Hmm. A very clear, a much clearer example of this is is Jesus's restoration of of Simon Peter after he denied knowing Jesus the night that he was arrested. And in John twenty one, the story is told. He asked him three times, "Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me?" And and it says in the text, Peter was hurt because he asked him the third time, "Do you love me, Lord? You know all things. You know I love you." feed my sheep, he said. And it's like, well, why did you want him to hurt? And it's very clear that by the prediction of Peter's, Peter's denial, and then the orchestration of it providentially with the rooster crowing and Jesus moving from one site to another in his trials, he's able at that exact instant to look right at Peter. There's zero doubt in my mind that Jesus intended to bring pain to Peter, but not ultimately pain. He wanted him to get away from the enemies of the gospel, to stop warming himself by that fire, to get out of that danger spot and go out and have himself a good cry. Mm. And that's what he did. Mm. And that sorrow and that brokenness and that weeping and then the surgery that Jesus did in John 21, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? That surgery that he's doing, he knew it would bring pain, but it was for the joy that was set before him he hurt him. He didn't do it to, to just make him hurt. He did it to heal him. Now, how does this pain relate to the fact that our sins always grieve the Holy Spirit? Yeah. And why would the Spirit want to work in us the yes. same grief he feels over our sins? That's a good way to put it. We have the idea of do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption, book of Ephesians. What that means is our sin brings grief to the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't immediately bring grief to us. All we like sheep have gone astray. Mm. And when Handel wrote that music, it's like sheep jumping and playing. It's cheerful music. Uh, that's the way he wrote it. It's fascinating. Handel's Messiah. All we like sheep have gone astray. It's, it's play music. Mm. Because the sheep are playing. Hmm. While the Holy Spirit's grieving, the Christians are sinning. But if they're genuine Christians, that will not, separation will not last for long. He's indwelling them and he will bring them down to where he is. Hmm. I want you to know now how I felt when you said that to your wife at the party, hmm. or when you looked at that illicit site, or when you had this covetous attitude, or when you did. I want you to know how much grief 
that brought me. And I want you to feel that grief too. So he works on us until we, as James 4 says, are grieving, mourning, and wailing, and we change our laughter to mourning and our joy to gloom. Yeah. And there's a an intentionality and a, a purposefulness mm-hmm. in all of this. Yeah. What is the ultimate fruit of godly sorrow according to verse 10? Well, it brings about repentance, and that's where you, we just need to understand what genuine repentance really is. Uh, verse 10 says, godly sorrow, sorrow brings repentance... Uh, that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. So we'd have to say the ultimate end of godly sorrow is salvation. He's saving us. And we're not done being saved yet. So that we would that we would feel sorrow when we sin is as reasonable as that we should feel physical pain when there's cellular damage being done to our body. Mm. Like, you know, a year and a half ago, I had a heart attack. It was good for me to feel the pain. If I didn't feel the pain, I wouldn't have gotten the medical attention that I needed. And so the pain taught me something's wrong mm. and I have to address it. I couldn't see it. It was within my, my chest cavity. And so it is uh, physical pain tells us cellular damage is being done. You are in trouble. You have to address this. I mean, simple illustration is you're burning your hand on an mm. element. Mm. It's like, oh, wow, you get that off. Well, the same thing is true spiritually. We need to feel pain spiritually so that we can repent of the sin, turn from it, hate it, and then embrace the righteous life that God wants us to embrace. And that is of the essence of the journey of salvation we're on. It's, isn't it a continual work of repentance, mm. like the first of the 95 Theses? It's a whole life of repentance, said Martin Luther. When the Lord commanded us to repent, he meant that the whole Christian life should be one of repentance. So every day the Spirit's saying, let's repent from some more things. He's showing you more sin in your life. And godly sorrow is part of that. And godly sorrow is also <laughs> contrasted with worldly sorrow in the right. same verse. And that's because there are certain things that must mark godly sorrow, the, the outcome or what, what mm-hmm. leads us in that direction. How might a counselor or a pastor who's working with someone caught in sin use the list of elements mm-hmm. of true repentance that follow this in verse 11? Yeah, that's a very good question. I want to walk through those elements. But first, I want to try to meditate briefly on worldly sorrow brings death. What does that mean? Well, one simple way is he's talking about eternal death, meaning hell, and that's part of that road road that leads to hell, that road that leads to destruction Jesus talked about. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And a worldly sorrow, which is an inadequate repentance, just being sad for sin, sad that you got caught, mm-hmm. Things like that are elements of not genuinely repenting. And sometimes they can just make you feel better about how things are, and that's not appropriate. But there's a deeper way of looking at this. There is an intense, ungodly sorrow that leads literally to death, suicide, Mm. where people are so captured by the darkness of life, including themselves, the way they're living, and what they've done. Mm. Think about a murder-suicide situation where somebody kills a spouse or a parent, and then kills himself, all right? Or just any any situation where you got suicide. What's going on there is it's a worldly sorrow that leads directly to death. And there's, there's where you get the contrast. We Christians sorrow as those who know the whole time that we've been forgiven. We're forgiven for the very mm. sins we're grieving over. Mm. They're forgiven. So there's a a deep element of hope in the midst of our sorrowing. That brings repentance. It's hope-filled. Even though we are sorrowing, 
We know we're going to come out of it. It's necessary for our salvation. It hurts, but it's still a joyful thing because God's working salvation in us. That's the contrast. Worldly sorrow could literally produce death because there's no hope. Look at Judas. He commits suicide because he's literally got no hope. There's no way he could ever be forgiven, so he believes it's done. And so he kills himself. So that's, I think, benefit. Now let's walk through the elements that he talks about in verse 11. They're very powerful. He says, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness. So you're taking sin seriously. Like, no, this is a serious matter. You're not lighthearted or flippant. This is, this is a big deal. You're dealing with your sin. So there's an earnestness here. And then an eagerness to clear yourselves. Um, you want to be thought of as a genuinely righteous and genuinely repentant people. Mm. And you are eager to do whatever it takes to restore your reputation. You're not denying, you're not saying, I didn't do it, it wasn't me. That's not it. But what you're saying is, I want to make this right. Whatever I can do to make it right, I will do. And so there's an eagerness to deal with it. And an indignation and alarm. What translation do you have? Indignation and alarm is my translation. It says what indignation, what fear would be after that. All right. So indignation, I'm not sure what he's specifically referring to, but there's a sense of the disgustingness of sin. And you're indignant that this would even be part of your life. Mm. Here in the Corinthians, you're indignant that this sin is going on in their church and they need, they must have it out. Mm. So there's an urgency and a hatred of the sin. You're hating the sin and you're you're concerned about it. You're afraid if we don't get rid of this, we, we could go down with this. We have to get this thing out. And so there's that sense of that. And, and then and there's a longing and a concern to address this to its roots and to make it right. So that's what I think are elements of genuine repentance. Why is this list essential to true repentance? Mm-hmm. And what would be the opposite reaction to sin? Okay, so um, it's it's important for us uh, as individual Christians and then uh, for pastors as counselors uh, dealing. You could imagine some significant marital sin and somebody kind of couples in there trying to save their marriage and trying to work on it. This chapter would be vital. Mm. And you want to see, especially in the guilty party, if there's one particularly guilty party. I mean, all, all of us are sinners, but you know, there are sins that, that will kill a marriage, destroy it. And you can imagine the couple wanting to work on it, but you got to see some genuine repentance on the part of the guilty party. He has to take this or she has to take it absolutely seriously, very seriously. And there has to be this ardency and this ownership of it and an intensity to make it right, an mm. intensity if if... They say, look, I said I'm sorry, all right? I mean, that should be enough. They, that, I'm not seeing that in this chapter. Somebody, somebody who's genuinely repentant, well, whatever it takes, whatever I can do to make it right, I'll do it. Well, you need to hear how it made me feel. Okay, tell me. Well, you need to hear it again. Okay. Well, you have to hear it a third time. Whatever, I will do it. There's this genuine brokenness mm-hmm. where whatever comes, you accept mm-hmm. it. But if you don't, then that's a counterfeit. I think that repentance can be counterfeit, that people can deceive themselves into thinking that they're repentant when they're really not. Why is this so vital? It's because repentance is of the essence of our journey of salvation. We have to, all of us, learn how to really repent from things and own our sin and and not be prideful. And so what was the other question? What's the opposite of it? Yeah, what would happen if someone didn't respond this way to sin? What would be an opposite reaction? They'd make excuses. they would get annoyed mm. at the process. They'd get irritated at the process. They'd, they'd push back on the process, feel like they've done enough to make it right, don't, mm. don't understand. So it's a little bit of a gaslighting thing where they're like, what's your problem? I mean, 
you seem to have a problem forgiving. Hmm. It's like, that's not what's going on here. You seem to have a problem repenting. And so, you know, that that type of thing. Now, obviously, we need to forgive. There, there's strong versus unforgiving, but you have to deal with the sin. And so this is a good chapter for what genuine repentance really looks like. Yeah, and I think it's important for us then to see this as something that can be useful to us to walk through and to have as just a diagnostic, asking these questions even of our own heart. Am right. I responding this way when I'm made aware of sin or when I recognize it in my own life? Am I right. responding like this? Yeah. How does their reaction to this strong rebuking letter or to Paul's strong rebuking letter that he had sent prove their love for Paul and why was this encouraging to him? Well, it proves because they they genuinely did repent, it shows, first of all, remember the real issue is not so much the horizontal between Paul and the Corinthians. That is important, but it's the vertical between the Corinthians and Christ. And the genuineness of their repentance shows the genuineness of the Spirit's work in them concerning the gospel. So that that's a tremendous relief to him. Tremendous relief. He, he's just so grateful that God has worked salvation in them as proven by their brokenness and their willingness, willingness to make things right. And that he found very encouraging. Hmm. And in the middle of verse 13, he goes on to say, besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus. What yeah. does Paul say were the reasons for Titus's joy? Well, Titus was happy for the same reason Paul's happy. Namely, it seems like the work in the Corinthians is genuine. Seems like they really do love Paul and they really love the gospel that mm. Paul preached and they love the Jesus that's at the center of the gospel that Paul preached. So he was refreshed. A genuine Christian fellowship brings refreshment. Mm. So he's like, he might have gone there with fear and trembling. Like, what is what are these these people? I've heard bad things. I mean, Wes, you know, we walked through 16 chapters of First Corinthians. I don't know if I'd been transported in time back there. I would have enjoyed going to that church. Right. You know, there are people getting drunk on Lord's mm -hmm. Supper wine, factions and divisions and hostility and, yeah. you know, un, unrestrained use of tongues and prophecy and like mayhem. Mm -hmm. I don't think I would have enjoyed it. So Titus, you can imagine, said, I don't know what to expect, but right. I don't think it's going to be good. And he goes there and it's like, wow, it was very different. And he was very refreshed by yeah. them. Yeah, to observe and see the gospel at work in these people must have been quite the the change from what he would have expected yeah. if he were aware of that letter that Paul had written, like he right. mentioned First Corinthians. And you can see, based on the words he uses here, Paul had boasted about the Corinthians to Titus, effectively saying, I think that the center of the boast is they are real Christians. Mm -hmm. They're genuinely born again. Mm -hmm. It's a real church. They've got their issues, but it's a real church. And it turns out to have been, after all. Mm -hmm. What do you find hopeful about Paul's final statement in verse 16? And what final thoughts do you have for us today? I'm glad I can have complete confidence in you. Um, that's what my version says. What mm. does yours say? I rejoice because I have complete confidence. There you in go. You. Complete confidence. And again, his confidence isn't in them. But what he is saying is, I am confident by what I've seen in you that this can only have been you know, the finger of God. Think about the, mm. the, 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 the magicians in Moses's time. When they saw one of the miracles, they, they tried to do counterfeits and they, they did some counterfeits. But when it got to that point, they just shook their heads and said, now this is the finger of God. Mm. And that's, you know, a very negative illustration, but I'm saying it positively. You know, Paul and Titus are saying, look, this is only the working of God's spirit could do this. And, and he said, look, I've got confidence that God's work in you is genuine and that brings me joy. So I would say... Uh, for us getting involved in the gospel ministry, um, pouring out, you know, 
gospel truth, planting seeds, praying for people, and then to see it all work, to see people really grow, to see them actually be converted and then grow and develop. What could be more encouraging in this world than that? Mm. Well, may the Lord develop hearts of true repentance in us as the gospel has its effect in our lives as we walk with Christ and grow to be more like him. Well, this has been episode eight in our Second Corinthians Bible Study podcast. We want to invite you to join us next time for episode nine, entitled Imitating Christ as a Generous Giver, where we'll discuss Second Corinthians chapter eight, verses one through twenty-four. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.